scripture reading this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, as we continue making our way through what was likely Paul's first letter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is God's word. Now we're going to take this passage from two angles. Uh, If you look back up, just kind of note some things in the text to start. Look back up at verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. So know that you've got some repeated terms from verse 1 where we were last week. You've got more and more repeated in verse 10 here, our passage. And so is walking. In fact, uh, walking sort of frames the passage and the significance of walking at walk in verse 1, walking in in verse 12. The significance of walk is that it is the go-to imagery throughout the entire Bible for life with God. You go all the way back to early Genesis, Enoch walked with God and then he was no more. Abraham, God says to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. All the way through the Bible, both Testaments, Genesis to Revelation, You've got life with God presented as walking with God. And so Paul, in using walk, is drawing upon all that tradition. Walk and please God, verse 1, verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. We've got insider and outsider practices in our passage, verses 9 to 12. So looking at it, we're going to take this from two angles today. We're going to look at verses 9 through 12, roughly as verses 9 and 10, and then verses 11 and 12. Verses 9 and 10 we'll call walking with one another, insiders, those in Christ. And then we'll look at walking before others, by others we mean outsiders, those not in Christ. That's verses 11 and 12. So today, walking with one another, and then walking before others. I think this is a uh, timely passage, uh, particularly with its emphasis on, on quiet and uh, not drawing a lot of attention to oneself. Uh, we live in days of turmoil. Everybody has a megaphone with their social media account. Uh, this is a, a whisper to a riot, as uh, someone once put it, and I like that way of putting it. Because uh, the context in which we spend most of our hours Every day is a swirl of competing and clamoring ideologies, the clash of uh, what everybody wants, uh, sometimes that they can have and sometimes that they can't have. And all of that bleeds into churches, uh, which should be places where all that's left on the doorstep, and we focus primarily on what we have in common in Christ. And so in that interest, I want to come at these two angles, walking with one another, insider practice, walking before others, outsider practice. I want to come at that with this in mind. So first, to start walking with one another, walking with those in Christ. Again, verse 1, 
Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, this is verse 1 in chapter 4, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. Now, verse 9, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, and that indeed is what you're doing. To all the brothers, not just in Thessalonica, but everyone in Macedonia, which was basically their state, their area, their region. But we urge you, brothers, into verse 10, to do this more and more. He's telling them the experience of brotherly love that they were having was great. They weren't kicking one another to the curb. They weren't stepping on one another. They weren't walking away from one another. They were in stride. And elsewhere in the New Testament, when Paul writes about this, he calls it, for instance, Ephesians 4, he calls it uh, uh, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so he's saying to them here, I don't have any more to teach you about brotherly love, and you don't need the teaching anyway. You're doing it. Keep going. Do so more and more. Let it gather momentum. This word for love here is phileo. And most of you probably realize, uh, whereas in English you've got love, I love my mama, I love Doritos, you know, and Greek was more precise, okay? Uh, if you loved your mom, it was agape uh, love that you had, that is her highest good, your highest goal. Uh, and phileo is the word here, translated brotherly love. We get our uh, city name Philadelphia uh, from this word, the city of brotherly love. If we practice brotherly love, what is brotherly love about? What's its distinction? Well, in a church fellowship, people in Christ, if we practice brotherly love, it means our fellowship is not weighed down by suspicion of one another. Brotherly love, verse 9, is the kind of love that seeks to build mutual trust rather than suspicion. Now, we'll still have disagreements among ourselves. I mean, have you seen brothers, brotherly love. Have you been around brothers? You got some boys? I was just with my nephews this weekend. They like to uh, wrestle and fight. Uh, well, you know, we've seen brothers fight, but this is about shared bond, a shared bond that isn't um, easily broken. Brotherly love does not mean that we are like-minded on every single thing. It does mean that we are like-hearted, which means we know, each one of us know, the love of God for us all, and we don't forget it in the case of one another. Church people can make you really mad, especially these days when everyone, it seems, has a problem with everyone else, what they're doing, saying, not doing, not saying, etc., and so on. Never seen a time like it. And if or when you're upset with a brother or sister in Christ, what almost always happens is we forget the love God has for them is the same love he has for you. So even when we can't affirm everything we think or believe among ourselves, we can affirm we're both responsible in Christ to the teaching of God, which is that we love one another. Into verse 9 again, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Where, where is he, what is he talking about? He's talking about the teaching of Jesus. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what we build on as the body of Christ is we build on where we're like-hearted, 
Not where we're like-minded. The body of Christ does not all have to think the same thing about everything. But we do have to think the same things about Christ and him crucified and him Lord of the church and the doctrine that comes with that. But you can have unison and unity even where there's not uniformity. You might offend me or I might offend you in some way. What you think about this or that, what you believe about something may not be what I think or what I believe, or you may have an expectation of me, editorial you and me here, or I have an expectation of, of you that you don't meet. You don't meet my expectation. I don't meet yours. For whatever reason, we're not of the same mind on everything. I may even think you believe dangerous things. But brotherly love means I don't see you as the sum total of viewpoints I can't stand. I see you as dearly loved by God and that you and I have the same heart to serve him. We have the same heart to glorify him. And this means I walk with you in pursuit of everything God has promised to be for us in Jesus. So this this is brotherly love. Verse 9, building mutual trust in place of suspicion. Rather than letting our disagreements over this and that turn us against one another, we look at each other as belonging to Christ, and that makes a difference in how we look at one another and how we regard one another. And so what Paul is doing when he says in verse 10, do this more and more, is he's, it's kind of like if you build a campfire, you have to fan those flames or a fire pit maybe if you've got one in your, your backyard, and you, you fan those flames. There's a difference between a campfire and a wildfire. And brotherly love means we find welcome and warmth around one another's fire because of Jesus, because of our shared bond in Jesus, not because we have lockstep agreement on every single matter of concern or the issues of the day. We make Jesus our bond even when there are things we disagree about. Let me give you a couple examples. I think this is why um, back in seminary, when I was at Dallas Seminary, my uh, church history professor, Dr. John Hanna, he's preached here before. Some of you will remember him. Love Dr. Hanna, my favorite prof there. I remember him vividly telling us, we who were about to head out into pastorates, most of us, where we were going to teach the Bible correctly and be the community guardians of sound doctrine, you know, Dallas Seminary type guys. He said, don't be surprised if your best friend becomes the charismatic pastor down the street. In saying that, he was trying to get us to see a little bit beyond the programming the school had given us that charismatic theology is wrong, you know. And he said, look, the charismatic brother down the street who preaches Christ is your brother. And what you may find is that if you can focus with him, uh, and and he actually said to us, he'll be more interested in you probably than you'll be interested in him. He'll be more generous of spirit because he knows there's something about we who study the Bible so much. We just get mean sometimes. I don't know what it is about us. And he said, um, uh, you'll find that uh, if if you can build trust with that brother, uh, then um, you're going to share the burdens of ministry with him. My best pastoral friend in this city has an elder board consisting of men and women. We're not like-minded on how we understand gender roles biblically, but we are like-hearted in everything. And so where we differ on gender roles, it doesn't even come up. 
Same with a professor I had at Beeson when I did a, a time there for a, another degree. He became my favorite professor there. This professor at Beeson, longtime pastor, First Press San Diego, before he ended up at Beeson, PCUSA guy. Uh, in fact, he, he he's, uh, frequently said to me, when are you going to have this old liberal PCUSA guy preach at your church? I'd be good for your church. Uh, I'm on the back of a couple of his books, endorsing uh, his books. He's on the back of mine, endorsing it. He and I, one day in class, went an hour in debate over gender roles. He was preaching leadership concepts, and he takes a very egalitarian view. There's basically two views, whether gender roles are set at creation or whether gender roles are cultural. Uh, and uh, he takes the role that they're cultural, and I take the role they're set at creation, and so that's the complementarian view versus the egalitarian view, and, and so um, he singled me out. He knew ahead of time that I was the only one in the room who had this particular view, and so we went an hour, and in our doctoral cohort included um, three women, an Anglican priest, uh, a a lady who's a pastor in Arkansas and a woman who uh, directs worship at a, a large African-American church in Philadelphia. Doug singled me out <laughs> to debate my complementarian views. He tried to get me riled up. This is a friend. This is what theological friends do. Um, and at the end of that hour, we took a break and I turned to the women and I said, I guess y'all maybe hate me now. And they said, I mean, it was moving. They could not have been more gracious to me. Now, obviously, they disagreed with me in principle. But they affirmed their love and respect for me as their brother. They all gave me a hug. They moved toward me. It was moving. The lady from Philadelphia said, you know, all my life, I've always felt like it's just men telling women, this is your place over here. She said, I didn't feel demeaned or devalued in the way you defended your view. She said, I felt lifted. I felt like you were just trying to be honest with the text. She said, thank you for the gentle, kind way you presented this. They reject complementarianism. They can't stand the view, but they could stand me. What is that? That's brotherly love, okay? From those sisters in that case. Sisters of mine in Christ, not part of my church or the way I understand, you know, things to operate in the church, uh, ways of being and doing in the church, but part of the church. Look, I, I know Pharisees can't really take what I'm saying and I'm a recovering Pharisee myself. But I think... We have to recover a generosity of spirit with one another, and we have to learn how to make friends in Christ as we find them, not as we would make them. Because a lot of us evangelicals get bunkered. It's a very bad tactic we have. We only listen to ourselves in our little group. We get bunkered, particularly those of you who lean more fundamentalist, or have really strong views, really particular places you stand on permissible differences, or, or those of you who are really more politically formed than you are biblically formed, and that turns into a litmus test for fellowship for you, you turn on your brother, your sister. You make him or her the other. When you hear him or her saying something you disagree with, or, or she's not cheerleading the thing that you think is the ultimate 
Instead of trust, there is suspicion. And where there's suspicion, there's anxiety. And where there's anxiety, there's this stirring in the fellowship not to love and to good works, but to more suspicion. We don't give one another the benefit of the doubt, and, and so we turn on one another. And when that happens, we're not doing as God teaches. Just not. Verse 9 is Christianity in practice. You've been taught by God to love one another, not to vet one another, to love one another, to see each other as in Christ. God loves me as much as he loves you. He loves you as much as he loves me. He's redeemed us in Christ. Verse 10, do this more and more. This is the practice of Christianity. However orthodox you think your doctrine, and I think mine is pretty orthodox. I think I've got a pretty solid theology. I got a bunch of books on my shelf at least. I've been to school, educated beyond my capacity. I have a worthless doctorate, you know. I mean, you guys that are doctors of people's medical conditions, you're doctors. That's why I don't want to go by Dr. Huffman because it's just a doctor of ministry. It's not a big deal. However orthodox you think your doctrine is, if you're not practicing this major part of God's own teaching, I don't think your carefully curated orthodoxy matters that much. And why do I say that? Look at the ministry of Jesus. His worst scorn. And he wept over them too, but the Pharisees got the worst, the, the most religious people he confronted, the most orthodox men of his day over and over again, because it was all knowledge without love. God calls us out of our bunkers, which doesn't require you to give anything up of orthodoxy, except the pride of it, if orthodoxy has made you obnoxious among the people of God. God doesn't lead us to pride. He doesn't lead us to suspicioning one another and having these litmus tests and these tests of, well, you're really in the fellowship if you believe this and this and this, and, but if you don't hold to these two things, then you're off. And what, This is just nonsense. It's what we do to God's house. The very thing he inhibits or inhabits us to do, we inhibit. The very thing he teaches us to do. And so he says in verse, verse 10, do this more and more. It's a repeated emphasis. Verse 1, more and more. Verse 10, more and more. Love gains momentum as you practice it. Brotherly love, verse 9, is the kind of love that seeks to build a fellowship of mutual trust rather than suspicion. And the only way we're going to build that is to focus on what we have in common in Christ and make that the, the basis of our fellowship with one another. Now the outsider practice. Two angles we're taking. The second of two. Walking before others. We've got walking with one another. Insider practice in the fellowship of Christ. Now walking before others. By others I mean outsiders. That term in verse 12. Unbelievers Paul means. Looking again at verses 11 and 12. Aspire to live quietly. And to mind your own affairs. And to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. In other words, the community of Christ takes care of itself. The community of Christ has needs. The community of Christ meets its own needs. And others see that. 
and want in on that, you know, to be cared for. I, I find in verse 11, just looking at 11 here, aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands. There's a particular beauty in this. And Paul is drawing upon the craftsman to learn something from the craftsman. Uh, I, uh, verse 11 brings to mind uh, James Thurber, quote, beautiful things don't ask for attention. I guess the spirit of this. Beautiful fellowship doesn't have to, you know, project itself. Beautiful things don't ask for attention. Now, glamorous things do. <laughs> Glamour and beauty are thought to be synonymous. They're not. Glamour needs attention. Glamour is all about attention. Beauty doesn't need attention, but beauty will get noticed anyway. It can't, it can't help but be. It's beautiful. What's being commended in this text, I, I think we could call it a beautiful witness as opposed to a glamorous witness. You know, there's some debate among pastors and church planners about the merits of what's called the attractional model of ministry. And the attractional model tries to attract those to church, outsiders, tries to get them in uh, by, you know, music that rocks and children's ministry that rolls and... <laughs> Pastors preaching on felt needs like relationship goals and managing life stressors. And if you do that, the belief is, you know, the people on the outside who think the church is irrelevant, they'll come in, they'll, they'll want that, they'll want to, to, to what the church is offering. And the attractional model bears its fruit. It does. Absolutely. But the knock on it is it can easily become glamour ministry. And you, you always have to keep the congregation hyped and excited and anticipating the, the next big thing, you know. Except these things in verse 11, they're small things, aren't they? It's small. And yet there's an attractional beauty in this. We're being directed here to look at the craftsman. Now, I, I have the advantage in that I live with a craftsman, a craftswoman, actually, my artistic wife, you come to our house and look around the garage, the power tools, the saw, it's hers, it's not mine. I'm very proud of Lynn for what she creates. She paints, she builds her own frames out of, uh, art, uh, out of uh, barn wood and, and things like that. And the apple didn't fall very, very far from the tree in her case. Uh, she, she got a lot of her, her dad Enter and, and you might remember this last Monday, my little weekly writing for the church. I, I uh, tributed my father-in-law. He turned 80 on Friday. We went over to Florence and surprised him. Um, I had to laugh at Colson asking on the way, if we surprise granddaddy and he's 80, are we risking a heart attack for him? <laughs> and I said, well, I don't think so. Uh, I think he's going to see the stuff in the yard as he's pulling up. And that's an advantage, um, but when all your friends are 80 and 90 in COVID season, they wave in the driveway and out on the street. We had a lot of that, you know, Jimmy having to walk out and greet people uh, who came to, to do a drive-by greeting. But I, uh, in tributing my father-in-law last Monday, I, um, I applied to him Matthew Crawford's words in his fine book, Shop Class as Soulcraft. 
This is Matthew Crawford's words, the satisfactions of manifesting oneself concretely in the world through manual competence have been known to make a man quiet and easy. My father-in-law can build anything, fix anything. He's still doing it at 80. He and his wife are still adding on to their house (laughs) himself and herself. She's very handy as well. I think that's a good way of putting the point here in verses 11 and 12. Paul is trying to get to competency in witness a kind of competency with outsiders that is best compared to manual know-how and that manual know-how doesn't have to draw a lot of attention to itself. It gets noticed anyway. If craftsmanship is good, it gets noticed. It's desired. Here's the rest of Crawford's statement on this. Just give you the full paragraph. The satisfactions of manifesting oneself concretely in the world through manual competence have been known to make a man quiet and easy. They seem to relieve him of the need to offer chattering interpretations of himself to vindicate his worth. He can simply point, the building stands, the car now runs, the lights are on. Boasting is what a boy does because he has no real effect in the world, but the tradesman must reckon with the infallible judgment of reality where one's failures or shortcomings cannot be interpreted away. His well-founded pride is far from the gratuitous self-esteem that educators would impart to students as if by magic. What Paul is aiming them and us to with regard to walking before outsiders is people in Christ not commending ourselves by offering chattering interpretations of ourselves that don't match the reality of our calling. Like how we sometimes give others the impression that the church is the place for people who already have it together. Instead of a a league of the guilty, as uh, one British writer puts it, I I love that, a league of the guilty. If we make others feel the church is the place for people who already have it together, there's a shoddiness to that. And public scrutiny will expose us eventually if we're trying to project that we've got it all together. They will tell us where our witness is off, where instead of wood grain, it's press wood. I think there are times the world says to, to us, hey, your lights aren't working, you know. You talk about your light shining. Can you just fix your light before you go pointing out all our problems? Can you, can you work on your own? Now, they can get us wrong, but a lot of times they get us right. Unbelievers can tell when we're not walking properly toward them. They don't know 1 Thessalonians 4. For that matter, a lot of Christians don't know 1 Thessalonians 4, but... When we excuse our hypocrisies, just kind of dismiss them. When we give up points of orthodoxy in order to blend in with them, which you don't have to do. If somebody's going to have a friendship with you and they're not a Christian and you're a Christian, they want you to be a Christian. I've seen that over and over again. They don't want you to give up something for them. If we're obnoxious about our religious liberties... That's shoddy work. Paul patterns on the craftsman here. Learn from him. Learn from the craftswoman. What do we learn? Because I'm not good with my hands. I'm all thumbs. Uh, Pardon the pun, but don't read this woodenly, okay? Um, Working with the hands, it, it doesn't mean that all Christians need to find something we can do, you know, with our hands. It's getting at how what the craftsman does, he pays honest attention to the elements he works with. 
I remember seeing a little video about a, a Danish potter. I watch strange stuff, I admit it. And she, uh, she talked about that, how, how she paid attention to the, she paid honest attention to the elements of her work, the clay in her region had to be worked a certain way and you had to respect that. Had to be fired a certain way and you had to respect that. Those of you who work with wood, there's certain woods that, that have a certain grain to them and you have to cut them a certain way and, 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 and sand them a certain way and polish them a certain way. And Paul is saying we're not, we're not people who are over, overly particular in the world, but that the way we relate with one another, it, it reverberates out. And, and there's a, a way that God has designed his church to be particularly attractive to people on the outside when they see people loving one another, when they know that they can, they can find fellowship, they can find people who care for them. The quiet life being commended here is not about keeping to ourselves because verse 12 indicates we're always in view of others on the outside and we should be. The quiet life committed here is about keeping ourselves directed at the elements that we work with, which is everything God has promised to be for us in Jesus, that, that he is accessible among us to those on the outside because what people need most is not our views on the issues. What people need most out there is him. Then we can talk about the issues. But they need Christ. That's walking properly toward outsiders. They're most in need of him. I'm not, even ha I'm not having issues discussions with unbelievers anymore until we talk about the resurrection first. We've got to recover this. This is Christianity. Beautiful things don't ask for attention. Jesus himself didn't ask for it. He's the most beautiful of all. He could have paraded around. He could have offered chattering interpretations of himself. But instead, when the religious types said, how do you do these things? He just pointed at the work. He always pointed at his work. The master craftsman, if you will. He even asked to be spared the very thing we praise him most for, his greatest work. And yet... Not my will, but yours be done. I, I find those words beautiful for what they mean to us. It's his whisper to the riot of all our sin that was about to descend upon his shoulders. And his work is good because it stands not just the test of eternity, it stands the test of reality also. Why people are still being drawn to him. 2,000 some odd years after he lived. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you love us and that you give to us your grace because um, all we contributed to this is we got lost and we continue to prove our need for your grace daily. Particularly those of us who don't think we do. <laughs> Lord, it, it's... Um, it's a matter of infinite patience you have with us, and I thank you. Lord, continue to move us toward one another, not looking for like-mindedness. Of course, we've got to have some friends who think about it the way we do, but that's not what our wider fellowship is dependent upon. It is dependent upon the like-heartedness of knowing that we are mutually loved in Jesus and not letting us forget that with one another. And then, Lord, help us to 
pay honest attention to the elements that we work with in such a way that people are drawn in. Would you make our church a place that can nurture new believers? That can give them a, a healthy a portions of your word and show people how to pray and be around people who are varied in our, in our ways and, and means of life and living, but that we all have in common Jesus and they keep coming back to him. Lord, would you do that for us? For your son's sake, we pray in his name. Amen.